I will be reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And I am reading from the common English version, uh, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day. And after you have done everything possible to still stand, so stand with the belt of truth around your waist, justice as your breastplate, and put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Offer prayers and petitions in the spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. When I was a little girl, our family spent most of the summer on Shaw Island. Our property, many of you have been there, was shady, protected, idyllic, as far away from evil in this world as you can imagine. My dad always whistled at the cabin, and my mother fried up extra pancakes to toss in the air to gather the seagulls. It was our happy place, our peaceful place, and the perfect hideaway. But I have a distinct childhood memory that causes me shame. My dad had made this huge mesh tray to lay out the fish that he caught, who were still alive and wiggling. My mom would heat the frying oil and prepare cornmeal batter as he would clean the fish. And the fillets were still quivering as she dropped them into the oil in the pan. Now that's fresh fish. But here is my shame. Even as a tiny girl, the baby sister, who felt invisible most of the time, I would take a stick that I found in the woods and I would poke those fish just to see them wiggle. It made me feel powerful. But here's the shameful thing. I poked them in the eye. That sweet little blonde curly-headed girl loved to poke dying fish in the eye. So we're returning to the Lord's Prayer this morning. Today, we will examine the phrase, deliver us from the evil one. And I could describe evil as something out there, Al-Qaeda and Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer and Adolf Hitler. History is replete with cruelty. And certainly God plans to completely eradicate sin and sinners once and for all. But the problem is, we all are evil, and we all have desperately wicked hearts. 
And if God this very morning was to powerfully eliminate sin and sinners, none of us would survive. We would all be toast. Nor would our children, our grandchildren, our mates, our neighbors, or our friends. And there would be great mourning on this earth. And so when we are finally delivered from evil at the return of Jesus, we will need a thousand-year recovery group and history lesson to understand exactly what has happened here on planet Earth. So our scripture today, Ephesians 6.12, explains that there is a lot of activity going on behind the scenes. Principalities and powers, rulers and authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Is this very complex system of malevolent spiritual powers even on your radar screen? Do you remember that that's all going on as you make your daily choices? No matter what evil we are fighting, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We cannot blame it all on Biden. I'm sorry he's not that powerful. Our materialistic worldview has made us naive about those spiritual forces, and we're blind to them. And we need to explore and discern the work of the enemy more directly so we will learn to fight him and not other human beings. We need to be awakened to the spiritual warfare and comprehend the fact that we can never win this kind of battle in our own strength. We are whooped if we're trying to do it on our own. But that's not where we're going to finish because we also have a supernatural deliverer that's even stronger. And that's what we need to just continually remember. Matthew 6.13, the verse from the Lord's Prayer that we are considering this morning, positions us as completely dependent upon God. We are children who are in need of a heavenly Father. This petition declares the real condition of our lives, that our souls exist in a world ruled by a force that is set on our destruction. When we pray, deliver us from the evil one, we are placing ourselves in a sphere of total dependence upon God because we have to be delivered and rescued. We cannot get out alive in our own strength. We are asking to be rescued from the power of evil and rescued from destruction. I don't know if you realize it, but this is a gigantic, huge request. This is like thousands of sermons worth in one phrase. 
deliver us from the evil one. It is a dramatic supplication. And Jesus taught us to pray this often, daily even, as indicated that he put it right there in the Lord's Prayer, that he wants us to ask to be delivered from evil. The Greek word rhymai that's translated deliver carries the drastic meaning of snatching at just the right moment. At just the last moment when destruction is certain, we will be snatched from evil, and we desperately need a deliverer. This is not a situation that we can ever solve in our own strength or wisdom, even if we form a committee. We can't do it. We are trapped as captives on planet Earth dominated by evil. And so we beg, deliver us from the evil one. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. So I go to the, both schools every week, and there's this darling little first grader at Cedarbrook who, when I have prayer requests, she always prays the same two things. She says that the coronavirus will go away and that Jesus will come soon. Now, isn't that a good prayer for a first grader? And that's what we all pray too, right? And of the two, Jesus coming soon is the better even of those two prayers. So I'm going to this morning plagiarize a story from my favorite preacher, whose name is Mark Picard. He generously emailed me his manuscript, and so this story is told in Mark's words. And if you like it, you can beg him, and he'll give you the whole sermon, of which this illustration is a part. The book that it's based on is called Ghost Soldiers. It's the forgotten story of World War II's most dramatic mission. It's by Hampton Sides, and here is the story. The Americans had landed on Luzon. MacArthur had kept his promise and returned. The Japanese were liquidating, which meant they were systematically murdering their prisoners of war as they retreated back across the island. And the American generals knew it. They knew they had prisoners of war that would be murdered if they did not intervene. And so it was decided at the highest level of command that an attempt would be made to liberate the prisoners at Cabanatuan before they were destroyed. Cabanatuan was the largest of the POW camps, and the ones that held the last survivors of the Bataan Death March that hadn't already been moved further inland. That rescue had to take place immediately because the liquidation could happen at any moment. This attempt would be undertaken by an elite force of 121 hand-selected army rangers, the best of the best of the U.S. Army. It was acknowledged to be one of the most daring missions ever undertaken, and the odds of success were minimal. 
This force would have to slip 30 miles behind enemy lines, cross two main highways that were constantly used by the Japanese to move their armored divisions. The camp itself sat in the middle of a flat, treeless plain with absolutely no cover to hide behind. So the last two miles would have to be traversed by crawling on their bellies with full equipment through the grass without being spotted. They would have no idea how many prisoners were still alive in there or how many guards were there watching or even the layout of the camp itself. What they did know, however, is that the camp sat beside a major road with frequent Japanese troop traffic. They also knew that less than a mile away across the river was another uh, camp with 3,000 Japanese troops encamped, and three miles down the road the other way were 5,000 more equipped with tanks and artillery. So the odds were dismal. 121 American men against 8,000 Japanese soldiers. But every single ranger volunteered to go. They all wanted to do this mission. It sounds almost like Gideon and the Midianites, doesn't it? Timing would be critical. Radio silence would be critical. There would be no backup support should they be detected prematurely. They would be entirely on their own, come what may. And then, even if everything went perfectly, they would still need to figure out how to move those 513 emaciated POWs back across 30 miles of enemy territory without being annihilated. With, by all the Japanese that were still there. The story of that rescue is absolutely unbelievable. They walked through 25 miles of countryside undetected. They crossed both busy highways undetected. They rounded up 50 water buffalo carts with their Filipino drivers and had them standing by four miles from the camp, ready to transport their captives to freedom. They split their force into three parts, two parts to severe and hold the road closed against the onrush of Japanese troops who would be coming from both directions, and the third part to actually go and liberate the camp. They crawled in broad daylight for two miles through the razor grass, undetected. By nightfall, they were in position so close that they could watch through the windows as the Japanese soldiers stripped off their clothes for the final time and prepared for bed. Everything went perfectly, as if by divine intervention, so that the Japanese, who outnumbered the Americans by 30 to 1, never knew what hit them. The attack was ferocious, deadly, and lightning swift. That small force of 30 kept 3,000 Japanese pinned on the other side of the creek. In less than five minutes' time, the Americans neutralized the Japanese resistance at Cabanatuan and had breached the front gate. Army rangers were running down the main street of the camp, shouting above the roar of gunfire and chaos of explosions, We're Americans! You're free! This is a jailbreak! Everyone head for the main gate. 
But then the situation turned truly bizarre. Not a single prisoner headed for freedom. One army ranger who had sliced his way through the fence with wire cutters said that the inmates of Cabanatuan looked like scared vermin running for cover when you switch on the kitchen lights. They were running away from their deliverers. It's an amazing tale. So the American soldiers literally had to force the captives to go to the gate. Recalcitrant POWs tried to sneak back to retrieve their treasure, a pack of contraband cigarettes or a Bible or a picture of a girlfriend. Rangers literally had to kick them in their rears, trying to install the sense of urgency and reality to their desensitized minds. All the while, these POWs had longed for rescue, and it had come and they couldn't believe it. When it did come, many couldn't bring themselves to go. They had grown so used to their existence as slaves and prisoners that they could no longer comprehend what it meant to be soldiers and men. They had lost sight of their destiny. But of course, the story has a happy ending. If it didn't, there wouldn't have been the book. And many of those survivors came back to the U.S. and lived out the rest of their lives. Captain Prince, who was the leader of this rescue, lived in Kirkland. And I don't know if he's still alive or not. I should have looked that up last night. He was inducted into the U.S. Army Ranger Hall of Fame in 1999. And not a single American prisoner of war was left behind. Those too weak to walk were carried by the rangers. Some rangers carried two of them, the whole four miles to the water buffalo caravan. Prince was the last man out of the camp. Alone he ran from barrack to barrack, shouting names to make sure not a single American was left behind, even though he expected to be shot down by the remaining Japanese defenders. Incredibly, only one American soldier was lost in this raid, and over a 1,000 Japanese defenders lost their lives. Well, Mark continued the story and had all kinds of amazing lessons, and if you want to hear it again, just ask him. But that's the end of what I've borrowed from him. The reticence of these POWs to be delivered illustrates that as human beings on planet Earth, we all have PTSD, post-traumatic sin disorder. We all have lived on planet Earth. We are so desensitized to sin and all that the devil has done that when we hear Prince Philip died, we think, that's about time. He was 99 after all. Death is our reality. Growing old and living with dementia is our reality. Class and racial inequities are our reality. Disintegration of our families is our reality. The selfish waste of all of our time on entertainment that leaves us numb and empty is our reality. The selfish waste of all of our resources on things that don't bring life is our reality. 
we not only experience the evil in this world, we participate in it. And because this is our normal, we do not have a clue that the evil one has done this. So these are all the well-developed strategies that our enemy has used to suck the spiritual image of God right out of us. There is no part of our lives that are not touched by evil. It has ruined our circumstances. It has marred our character. Indeed, it has affected the whole of God's creation. All creation groans. And I was reminded of this last Monday as we had a mama deer and her baby come to my smorgasbord in my garden. And Mark loves to take his pellet gun and scare them away. And he does shoot at the adults, but he didn't shoot at this baby. But this baby had a wounded leg. His, the knee of this little fawn was already wounded and bleeding. And we didn't realize that, but when Mark shot the mama, the mom bounded away, and this poor little baby was left in my yard wondering what to do now. So he just laid down exactly where he was and froze, like, if I'm quiet, they won't see me. And as we tried to approach it to see if, it, if this little baby fawn was okay, it, of course, bounded away, leaving a stream of bright red blood. Eventually, we decided we would leave the poor little thing alone because we were scaring it to death. And it spent the rest of the day, probably 10 hours, in my garden, just waiting for Mama to come back. It was still there when I went to bed at night. And my heart was breaking because we did this. That pellet gun scared the mother away. And this baby's fear and trauma had been induced by us. We had participated in evil. But am I going to tell him not to shoot the deer anymore? Hmm. I don't know about that. Anyway, all creation has had to suffer because of human choice. And you all know that, and you see that. And the enemy has used human choice to make the situation more and more desperate. All creation is groaning. Without a rescue, without a deliverance, there would be no hope for anything otherwise. We would be like that helpless little baby deer, just waiting, waiting. But I have some wonderful news, my friends. A rescue mission is underway. And like MacArthur, Jesus will return. He will deliver us from evil. My greatest concern, though, is not with the evil out there, although it's pretty horrible. It's the evil in here. It's that little girl poking the eyeballs out of fish. It's the spiritual battlefield of my mind which so often turns selfish and angry. This is the evil I'm worried about. There is still evil in me that rears its ugly head, and I just cannot 
seem to break its power in my life. I am trapped. I fear that as the powers of spiritual darkness close in, I'll wimp out. Any of you ever worry about that? That when it really gets hard, you're not going to have what you need to honor God to the end. And as I read the prophecies of all the things that will happen before Jesus comes back, I worry that my faith will fail. That is why I loved that first song we sang this morning. Because it says, when my faith is weak, he holds on to me. He will hold me fast. It's not about my strength. It's about his commitment and his strength and his love for me. And I fear that difficult life situations will divert my attention from the unfailing love of Jesus. But nothing can divert his attention from my need. That's good news. Relying on my own desperate strategies, I know that I am capable of returning evil for evil. And don't we all do this? My greatest concern is not what is going to happen to me. It's how I'm going to respond to it. That's what I'm worried about. That is why I am so thankful that Jesus came to this earth to rescue me. Not only from the evil out there, but from the evil in here. I love that. What a wretched woman I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Jesus is going to rescue me. Jesus showed the devil more respect than many of us do. Jesus didn't consider this enemy as just one more play or an easily presumed control that he needs to have. Evil is serious. Evil is radical. How do I know? Because the cross was serious, and the cross was radical. And it was evil that made Jesus have to go to the cross in our behalf. And we can expect that Satan will do exactly what he has planned to do. John 10.10 tells us, he came to this earth, he is our enemy that came to steal, to kill, and destroy so this is his plan, so we better be ready for it. But even as the devil plans these things, God is still sovereign. Even when evil seems to have the upper hand. We find that in the story of Job. Because Satan can go back and forth to the throne room in heaven. I can't imagine. And he can go into the presence of God and taunt him. God is demonstrating that Satan has an agenda. He is allowing Satan enough rope to hang himself on. And Satan is serving God's purposes by hanging himself and letting us all see what he's really like. And so this is what we experience. The wheat and the tares grow together. And so when we're wondering why God doesn't do something about the evil, we have to realize that the people doing evil are somebody's brother or son or love. God wants everyone in the universe 
to understand why he judges as he does. And one of the songs that is sung in heaven says, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Okay, read that with me. Just and true are your ways, King of the Ages. God is determined that he's going to let everybody know who he is before he takes anybody out, which is kind of interesting. The only way that the devil can wage war with God is through humans. So often we see humans being the evil. He, the, the devil focuses on us, and, and his strategy is to frustrate God's purposes for humanity. The devil can't touch God directly, so he plays with us instead. His way of doing that is just to play. He is a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Well, I had a cat when we lived in Maine. His name was Zeus, and he was an amazing mouser. And we lived in an old house that had lots of mice. And one day, I caught a mouse that was still alive, and I decided I would give him to the cat. <laughs> kind of a gruesome thing. So I put him, the mouse, on the stairway, and the mouse starts to run. And the cat, of course, was having so much fun. And he played with it. And it was like a 15-minute ordeal that the kitty was playing with the mouse. And finally, the mouse was very dead, and the kitty is throwing the mouse back up the stairs because he wants to do it again. Okay? When the roaring lion is looking for someone to devour, he likes to play with our brains. He likes to see us miserable and frightened. And you know, even after we have long since given up or turned our life over to God, he's still trying to play. But we have a God that's even stronger. Here's the kicker, though. When we're on Satan's agenda, he doesn't need to harass us. But when we align ourselves with God's purposes as citizens of his kingdom, now we're Satan's enemies. Uh-oh, watch out, Pat. Revelation 12, 17 tells us how our enemy feels about the church. He was enraged with the woman. That's us. He's enraged with us when we do God's will. And he makes war with the rest of her offspring. He's making war with us. And I saw a mug, and I want one of these. It says, I want to live in such a way that when my heat fit, hit the floor in the morning, the devil says, oh no, she's up. I want to live every day like my life matters and that it's very clear that the devil is my enemy. But I have to expect that if I do that, I'm going to catch some of his plans from this very complex scheme of evil that he has going. We all know from experience that if we catch someone in a lie, it often becomes more violent. It's, when it's stripped of its pretense and exposed, it makes the person mad. 
So when we acknowledge that there is evil at work, when we acknowledge that we want to fight evil with our very lives, when we desire to overcome it, don't be surprised if you get a reaction. Get ready for a fight. As you came in this morning, I wanted to have a prayer, and I think the deacons may have this somewhere. Okay, thank you, Walter. If you would pass that prayer out, um, I was not as prepared as I was. Maybe Walter can go up to the, oh, look at this, go up to the, yeah. So this is a prayer from the back of John Eldridge's book, Waking the Dead. And I'm going to tell you a story about this prayer and about a time that I prayed it, which is why you needed to have it before I tell the story. Um, John and Stacy Eldridge have such an unusual perception of spiritual warfare. And the book Waking the Dead is how to wake us as Christians up to the fact that we have an enemy that's making assaults on our lives. And I will never forget the first time I prayed this prayer. It's called A Prayer for Daily Freedom from the book Waking the Dead. I had been reading this book, and I realized that the enemy was after my teenage kids. I saw evidence that he was making some pretty serious inroads into their lives, and it made me just horrified with the spiritual battle that was going on. I wanted to exert some firmer control, but I am also horribly inconsistent, and often when I tried to exert control, I just made everything worse. I knew that we really needed wisdom, and we needed a deliverer for our family, that our teenagers needed spiritual protection. And so I took this prayer that you now have in your hands, and I began praying for my kids, just earnestly begging for my kids. It was Sunday evening, dinner was over, and all three kids were quietly studying, preparing for the next week. Mark was working on our house. There were patches of subflooring in the upper floor that were spongy, and he was getting ready to replace the carpeting. So he was systematically replacing the floor with new reinforced materials with the subfloor. He cut through the floor in the hallway with a circular saw, and he hit a major water line which wasn't in a place where you would expect it to be. Meanwhile, I'm praying the spiritual warfare. So you, you kind of get the, the, it's all happening at the same time. Suddenly, there was yelling and shouting, and all five of us running around trying to stop the water that was gushing like a geyser. Well, Mark had spent the past three years building cabinetry and built-in bookcases in all the kids' bedrooms and the family room in the basement. The basement project had just been completed. Now this water was rapidly seeping through the basement ceiling and dripping on his computer, dripping all over our books, and he ran to turn the water completely off. Then he covered up his computer and he began taking a drill and drilling holes in the ceiling he had just put in. So the weight of the water wouldn't bring the entire ceiling down. 
Wide-eyed, all four of us watched him and ran around with every towel we could find in buckets and bowls to catch those waterfalls coming from the ceiling above. About an hour later, the streams had tapered into occasional drips, and the first load of towels was in the wash. It would take Mark months of rework and, and considerable expense to patch up the damage that had been done that day. I went back to our bedroom, and I tr picked up this prayer for daily freedom. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to use this or not. Look what I just provoked in the wrath of the devil. And then it hit me. That domestic drama was not random. I had made our family demons nervous as I began to get serious about praying for my kids. And my enemy was putting me on notice that there would be consequences if I prayed against him. It drew back the curtain of the unseen for me and made me all the more determined that I needed to pray and aware that this was a powerful prayer, powerful enough that the enemy worked very hard to keep me from using it. Prayer is how we fight, my friends. It is the only way that we can wage spiritual war. Our scripture in Ephesians 6 about the spiritual armor concludes by telling us to pray. God has provided weaponry for us, personal protective equipment, if you're medical. We have been given personal protective equipment. But we have to put this equipment on, and we do that by prayer. Verse 18 tells us to pray. Twice it tells us to pray. Verse 20, verse 19 tells us to pray. And verse 20 tells us to pray. You would think we would get the message. To be delivered from evil, we have to pray. We specifically need to pray for protection from the devil's designs against our life. We need to pray, as Jesus taught us, deliver us from evil. Poneris is the Greek word that is lying behind evil in this passage. And this word is better translated evil one, a specific enemy. Therefore, Jesus shows us that we should always pray for protection against Satan's because his scheme is everywhere. Now, in Matthew 6, 13, notice, we do not pray, deliver me. It's plural, deliver us. We are in this fight with other believers. So although God constantly rescues us from danger and temptation individually, ultimately, when we get rescued, it's a community affair. We get rescued together. And when Jesus comes to save us all, we will say, we praise you, we thank you, Lord. It's just so helpful. We pray, God, Lord, save us, and our position is shared. Colossians 1.13 tells us that he has rescued us from what? 
the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This verse is packed with spiritual implication. He has rescued us. Is that present tense, future tense, or past tense? It's past tense, right? He has rescued us by going to the cross on our behalf. And we're all waiting to be delivered from evil for the day that Jesus comes back when he says, I have already delivered you. I have already rescued you. This verse also shows us that there's these two parallel kingdoms on in enemy-occupied earth. There's the dominion of darkness and the kingdom of the sun. And every single day, we get to choose which kingdom we're going to live in, where our attention is going to be focused. We already know about the dominion of darkness. We just have to read the news. And I have to say, the more news we read, it may not actually help us to get into the kingdom of the sun. It may suck us deeper into the dominion of darkness. But we have been rescued. It's there. We have already been rescued. It's past tense. Notice the tense of the last phrase there, too. It says, we have been brought into the kingdom. Present tense, brought into the kingdom. We can live in God's kingdom today by submitting our lives to him and living for his honor and glory. We have new spiritual choices and opportunities that many of us, as former POWs, are not exercising. So I looked up the original Greek word for rescue here in this verse, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And the word for rescue was riamai. And guess what? That is exactly the same word as Jesus used in the Lord's Prayer. So we can link these two ideas, and we have the Greek to kind of say, yes, this is the same idea that's being taught here. Jesus taught us to pray to be delivered, because that was before he died. But Paul taught us that Jesus has already delivered us, because the cross and the deliverance that Jesus did for us had taken place. In John 4, verse 4, John tells us, the one, for in 1 John 4, 4, he says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Is that good news? Okay, who's stronger here? We are. He is. And as he lives in our hearts, we do not have to be defeated. Jesus in, and the enemy are no way equally matched in this battle. Jesus is God himself, and the enemy was just a created angel. And it gets better. Revelation 12, 14 says, Lucifer took a third of the angels of heaven. Okay, so how many were left? Two-thirds. There are two good angels for every one bad angel. We are never outnumbered. We are always defended. 
The, the hosts of heaven will defend us. And we know the end of the story, don't we? Do we live like we know the end of the story? Let's start living like we know the end of the story. God wins. Okay, so say that with me. God wins. John 17, 15, Jesus prays for his disciples. And he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Okay? We get to live here in enemy-occupied territory, but we do not live unsupported. We are incredibly supported as we live the lives that he's calling us to live. The one who taught us this prayer then led the way in the deliverance of evil. He went to the cross, and he died to deliver us from the evil one. Colossians 2.15, I have to have one more verse. It tells us that Jesus disarmed those powers and authorities. How, what does it mean that they have been disarmed? Their weapons have been taken away. Okay? When he went on to the cross, he took the power of Satan out of our lives. He triumphed over them, it says, by the cross. The government of Satan received a fatal blow that day, that Friday at Calvary. His powers and authorities were disarmed, and Jesus, as he died for us, rescued us from the dominion of evil. And then it says he made a public spectacle of them, which means he pulled back the curtain and let the universe see who our enemy really was. The character of Satan and the demonic hordes. He triumphed over them by the cross. And just when Satan thought he'd won a crucial battle, God used his lies and used his activity against him and made the truth be known. We could never disarm the enemy, but Jesus disarmed the enemy by going to the cross so the victory could be ours. So, how many of you have ever played tag? What are the words you always say when you play tag? You're it. So as I was growing up, we would sometimes spend our summer evening with our neighbors playing Starlight Moonlight, which is kind of this combination of hide-and-seek and tag. The whole neighborhood would come out, and we'd play in the dark. Now, I have never been able to run, even when I was a kid. It hurt to run. And this was not my game of choice, but I didn't want to be left out, so I would play. But I was very often it because I would often be tagged. I was then had to be the chaser, the hunter-downer, more, more often than I enjoyed. And once I was it, all hope was lost because I could never catch anyone else. They could all run so much faster than I could. So I did everything I could to somehow avoid being it. Overcoming evil is just the opposite. Jesus is it, and we are not. We are not it. 
It's not up to me to make everything happen, to turn out right, to solve the world's problems, and to make evil go away. If I thought it was, I would be a basket case. It's Jesus' job to do that, to make evil go away. Yoked to Jesus, I let him carry the heavy load of all the evil in the world, the church, my family, and me. And it is a great relief to let him be it. When I become aware of some horrible evil, when it starts to weigh me down, I have to pray, deliver us from evil. You're it. So if you find yourself lapsing back into the role of being it, you can do the same. You can pray the way Jesus taught us. Deliver us from evil because he can and he will and he has already done this.